0: A national Project on Race and Capitalism. Welcome to season three of New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, histories, and geographies. With your host, Michael Dawson.
1: Today's guest is Aiko Day, who's an associate professor of English at Mount Holyoke College, where she specializes in Asian American literature, critical ethnic studies, and settler colonial studies, to name a few. Some of her publications have appeared in Canadian Literature, Amher asian Journal, American Quarterly, and Critical Ethnic Studies. Her recent book, Alien Capital, Asian Racialization and the Logic of Settler-Colonial Capitalism, published by Duke University Press, examines the intersection of the history and logics of Settler-Colonialism with capitalism and the racialization of Asian immigrants who moved to Canada and the United States. It is my pleasure to welcome Iko to the show. Welcome to the podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you on. I've been following your work for a while now, and I'm looking forward to this conversation.
0: I am too. I'm really glad to be invited, and thanks for your interest in my work.
1: There's a lot of places we could start, because your work brings a lot together and goes very deep at the same time. But this past weekend, several of us were at a conference on racial capitalism that I think saw work going in new directions. And one of the directions that I thought was extremely uh, fruitful and has a, and I look forward to seeing how it develops, is your work on what you call nuclear colonialism and the wastelanding of in, indigenous sites, and one of the sort of striking aspects, but not the only one, obviously, was the way that you talked about how settler colonialism and racial capitalism in the nuclear age brought together Africa the Americas and Asia in a particularly horrific way. Can you say more about what you're thinking about, how you're moving, how you're working on that area?
0: Yeah, I'm definitely interested in trying to maybe displace uh, the sort of history of the nuclear or the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which has tended to focus pretty much exclusively on You know, the scientists involved in the Manhattan Project and and that kind of thing, everything that was involved in actually dropping the bomb, the decision to drop the bomb and all of those kinds of that kind of research. Um, And so instead, I wanted to try to think about the atomic bombing from its origins and thinking about resource extraction. So um, it is relatively unknown that in the 1940s, uranium, the uranium used in the bomb was sourced from the Belgian Congo and the Great Bear Lake region of the Northwest Territories in Canada, and it was tested in New Mexico. So I was interested in thinking about this kind of, these three different sites as a kind of, having a kind of intimacy that are brought in this kind of supply chain of violence that's uh, visited onto Japan. So it's a way of thinking about both making Japan a kind of wasteland in terms of like the devastation that the bomb wrought on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but also to think about ways in which the the, there were major nuclear effects that you know really destroyed communities in the belgian congo but also in the great bear lake region so trying to think about the role of uranium in relation to energy in relation to in, in relation to national power and so trying to think through those questions, through this intimacy of three continents, which is kind of a a way of adapting Lisa Lowe's, um, the title of her recent book, The Intimacy of Four Continents.
1: One of the aspects that grew out of this nuclear colonial, of course, is what happens when you have toxic nuclear waste and where that ends up as well. It also ends up quite often in the Southwest and areas that have been colonized or, or conquered as well. One of the theoretical aspects of, of the work that you were talking about on this weekend was cycles of accumulation. And we're trying to relate how the work on wastelanding re- relates to uh, Marx's series of primitive accumulation. Could you say more about that as well?
0: Sure. As you mentioned, it's really important to think about the way that the, that toxic waste can, has contaminated these areas in the Congo, but also, and, and also in the Northwest Territories both for obviously for the in for the purposes of creating the atomic bomb but also i think it's important to stress that even the you know the idea that nuclear energy is green is really kind of a massive distortion given that it also produces this sort of toxic contamination as well in the process of extracting uh, uranium for nuclear energy so the toxic nature of, of uranium extraction is an important point. In terms, and so I've actually been drawing on the work of Tracy Bryn Boyle's um, work, which uh, her, her book is called Wastelanding, and it looks particularly at the Navajo nations in New Mexico and how they've suffered kind of uh, a lot of toxic, or they've been sort of designated as kind of sacrifice zones for toxic uh, waste dumping and that kind of thing. So I was interested in what, how we could understand. Why these places are constant, kind of almost like repeatedly used as sort of places where you either extract um, resources from and then also dump its waste there. So I was interested in thinking through the yeah the the kind of economic, cultural, social, political logics that that enable that to happen. So I have been thinking a lot about primitive accumulation alongside many people, you know, and sort of tracking those. Reinterpretations of Marx's primitive accumulation. He had originally, I believe, actually, the term primitive accumulation also comes from Adam Smith. It's not even his term, but so he calls it so-called primitive accumulation, and he tends to see it as a kind of pre-pre stage or pre-history of capitalism. That's very violent and and often and connects kind of slavery and colonialism. But then, but then there's this idea that after that, you know. Proletarianization happens, and then you know, and then you're in sort of a full kind of capitalist marketplace kind of idea. So, l- looking to the work of Rosa Luxemburg, Sylvia Federici, also indigenous scholars like uh, Glenn Coulthard, you know, they're t- they they want to disrupt that kind of linear temporality of primitive accumulation and instead uh, stress its ongoing kind of structural character. <laughs> so, I've been interested in particular in Teasing out Rosa Luxemburg's work in particular, because one of her critiques of Marxism by focusing on the category of primitive accumulation is to argue that there is a kind of constant imperialist, an imperialistic dynamic of capitalism that always needs to, it always needs an outside to incorporate in order to expand. And so she refers to this outside as this non capitalist sphere. And so I'm interested in thinking about what, how do we understand this non-capitalist sphere in the 21st century, and um, and so can we think about it in terms of wastelanding? Can we think about it in terms of the places that are are zoned as or um, sacrifice zones, you know, for capital accumulation? Yeah, so that's that that's kind of the connection that I'm trying to make. And I also just want to recognize that there have been lots of critiques of Rosa Luxemburg's work because. Part of her, I guess, uh, a related critique of Marx's approach is to, to argue that that dynamic of that imperialist dynamic is actually motivated by kind of an underconception <laughs> thesis. And I think that people just think that, you know, that's probably not. Anyways, there's been there's been a long literature and critique of that particular part of the argument. So if we kind of set that aside, I think that the um, the imperialist dynamic that needs kind of an outside, I think, is kind of a compelling place to look at accumulation again.
1: I was going to push back a little bit myself on that because the fact that there's an inside outside is certainly part of the ideological structure of capitalism and imperialism, and even people like some of the key British imperialists. spoke precisely in, in those terms. Mm-hmm. But one of the debates that there's been around, for example, slavery in the United States is that uh, modern scholars of slavery are making a very strong argument that I tend to agree with that it's not an anachronism, it's not outside of capitalism, but it's integrated within a global capitalist system through slaves as capitals, through the financing, mm-hmm. um, through insurance, etc. So even when you're thinking about wastelanding. I'm not sure these are zones that are outside of capitalism but they're incorporated into capitalism in a way that certain areas of the world are and certain peoples of the world are are deemed inferior Uh and are under one regime while others are in, in a different type of regime the one that we could seek at more classically capitalist um, by Marx's and others' definition. Mm-hmm. But they're still all part of a single global capitalist order, is what I would argue, I guess. Yeah,
0: I, I, I agree. And so maybe the, the terms outside and inside are not helpful, or they can be kind of misleading. And so that's why I've, I've looked at the work of Sandra Massandra and Brett Nielsen, because I think that they have a useful way of rethinking Luxembourg by what they what they argue is that if we sort of understand this kind of idea of the outside of capital as like in non-literal and kind of non-territorial terms, it's possible to sort of instead think about I don't, certain kinds of arrangements, societal arrangements, or different kinds of economic activity that sort of constitute in a very, maybe in a temporal way, this outside. So it's not so it sort of un- uh, more it from this idea of a kind of I, I think it, especially the ter- this idea that there's a territorial outside or something like that mm-hmm. is kind of misleading. But instead, thinking about how does a certain kind of social societal arrangement like a welfare system or something, you know, can, that that is can now be seen as kind of something that can be designated as a kind of outside that can be used to expand capital. This is not fleshed out, but it, it, is, it is something that I've been uh, grappling with. And I think that they have a useful way of trying to talk about the outside that's always on the inside and and to kind of think through Luxembourg's ideas uh, as non-literal and non-territorial.
1: One of the themes in your work, at least what I've seen of it, is the the relationship between insiders and outsiders, and how that maps onto various race, racial and ethnic divisions, and and how it relates to nationality. And one, you, you start your book with this extraordinary vignette of what happens when an Asian woman scientist is put on a hundred dollar bill in Canada. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, uh, that was uh, that happened, I believe, in twenty twelve when uh, there was a big controversy about the removal of an Asian scientist from the front of the Canadian $100 bill. And so I was interested because there was a huge outcry from many Asian Canadian organizations, you know, about this. And I just thought, wow, like, it's just, I mean, I mean, there had been already been this sort of anti-Asian racism around uh, around rich, you know, wealthy Asian people. And so I said, why would you want, like, is it, why would you want to have like an Asian person on your money? I mean, I thought the same thing, actually, in relation to debates about trying to get Harriet Tubman on like <laughs> some kind of dollar <laughs> billing. Like, wow, that's interesting because, you know, slaves were fungible forms, you know, they were fungible commodities. And so there's like an eerie <laughs> connection to that. So so I was just interested in thinking about like, what if we were to approach this controversy thinking about what is the intersection of Asian-ness and money or this idea that asian can you know, has a kind of quantitative form or currency. And so that was sort of the starting place for, you know, the argument that I ultimately make in the book, which is that the whole, the ideas about Asian racialization are kind of rooted in this idea that they are associated with a kind of um, abstraction of capitalism or, a, um, and that they seem to embody a kind of excessive efficiency that, you know, is is much more on the kind of quantitative rather than qualitative side of, of, of thinking about of, about capitalism.
1: Yeah, you make the distinction between sort of the concrete and abstract aspects, right, of capitalism. And could you say a little bit more about what you mean by the economism of the Asia, Asian racial form?
0: Sure. So I think that, you know, in the 19th and early 20th century, Asians, like first Chinese and then Japanese, were figured as cheap labor so and that, that that had a destructive that were a threat to white labor and so they're embedded in that notion of cheap labor is this kind of excessive economism <laughs> that um, they work too hard or work too or there's they're working too quickly and so that's disrupting it's disrupting the labor market share that sh- that white laborers feel entitled to so there's that kind of idea of cheap labor kind of being associated with kind of excessive efficiency or excessive economism. And then even, I think also that's connected to the model minority thesis, which also has within it kind of the figure of the, you know, the uh, kind of, I don't know, like a, a, a certain kind of economism that's associated with this very pliable worker. So, so I was thinking about how connecting those, both of those kinds of stereotypes and thinking about how Asian, Asian Canadians have been, or sorry, Asian Asian North Americans have been associated with the temporal abstractions of capitalism, and this is rooted. And I probably should say something about romantic anti-capitalism, which might help to clarify the way that I'm thinking about abstract and concrete. But so, I don't, if, if you want me to talk about that, maybe that'll help to make it a little bit more clear.
1: Yeah, that was going to be my next question. So please go ahead. Okay.
0: <laughs> So romantic anti-capitalism is a theory that I uh, you know drew from the work of Moish Postone, and and it's basically an ideology that misunderstands capitalism as an opposition between you know the concrete sensory the, the real natural world and then the abstract intentional like intangible and non-sensory kind of dimension on the other on the other. And so in a in a like in a paradigm of romantic anti-capitalism, the things that people will sort of see things that are unnatural and intangible, like those characteristics like finance, uh, capital accumulation, things you can't see as sort of as destructive. (laughs) And then those things that are concrete, like commodities and sensory, those will, and connected to nature, those things are kind of on the concrete end. And so um, in Postone's work, he talks about the, the Holocaust, actually, in those terms. And he talks about the ways that the historical segregation of Jews in finance, capital, and, and interest-bearing kind of financial firms, that actually has made them, kind of associated them with finance. And in a, and in a moment of dramatic social upheaval, they became sort of this kind of personification of that abstraction of capitalism. And of course, I just want to underscore that Romantic anti-capitalism is a misreading of capitalism. It sees it as an opposition between the things we can see and the things we don't see, and so because, of course, capitalism is a dialectical process, and the abstract and concrete are kind of uh, <laughs> they're they're constantly working together. Like a commodity has exchange value, but it also has use value, and you can't. They're not an either-or kind of thing. They they have they're kind of simultaneous. So, so it's so that's the part part where I I adapt um, that notion of. Jews being the personification of capitalism based on their, their relation to finance capital. Um, and I think about how Asians in some ways are also related to the abstract dimensions of, ab- uh, of capitalism, but not, in relation, not because they had a relation to finance capitalism, but more because of the ways in which their work was figured, the way that it was seen as temporally excessive and part of a kind of destructive value regime that interrupted or threatened the sort of social reproduction of white labor.
1: And part of what uh, in the case of Asian labor and is there's a massive erasure that happens, right? So my father-in-law, who was Japanese-American, was born on the Sugar, plant, sugar King Plantation after his parents came over from Hiroshima Prefecture as laborers, as contract laborers. Mm-hmm. And the there was nothing pliant about the Japanese-American labor force in Hawaii and elsewhere. It was one of the most militant labor forces in the United States constantly waging, at one point, a general strike in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And, and even into the 60s and 70s, Asian Americans, for example, in Chinese American communities, were at the forefront of the sort of people, color-led wing of the new communist movement in, in organizations that were extraordinarily militant in places like New York, San Francisco, and throughout the United States. But that In addition to the sort of racialization that was very much evident during internment during World War II for Japanese Americans, that entire history gets really, really flattened through the model minority myth.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I just find that it's, I mean, I think that part of the roots of the, or the extension of the myth are that, you know, the reason that Asian Americans are so, such good middle managers or model minorities is that, you know, it's part of their Asian kind of, it's an Asian cultural trait that, Asians are by nature filial, that they are obedient, and you know this and that. But then when you actually really think about it, um, the fact that there have been like you know communist revolutions in so many Asian nations, I mean, it completely <laughs> destroys that fantasy that there's anything inherent inherently obedient about Asians, right <laughs> uh, or this is an essential quality of, of Asians um, because a lot of the model minority thesis does kind of tend to Try to link it or root it in some sort of essential Asian kind of character, which, of course, it, and maybe, it would, maybe if there is one, it's a revolutionary one.
1: <laughs> and, of course, that then is used quite viciously by various media centers to, to use the myth, not the reality, as saying, why can't Blacks and Latinx populations be more like them?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that comes into play in the post-war moment, right? So, I mean, I always tell my students that I think that it's really interesting that Japanese Americans are, you know, they're cast as the yellow peril. In Canada, they were not even allowed to return. Japanese Canadians weren't even allowed to return legally to the West Coast until 1949. They confiscated all their property and actually liquidated it to pay for the internment as well. But, This idea that Asian or Japanese Americans, Japanese Canadians, are the yellow peril, and then literally within ten years or you know fifteen years, they're now the model minority. (laughs) Because so you know in that sort of historical intersection of like the Cold War, you know, civil rights mobilizing, Asian Americans, and particularly I think Japanese Americans, become this new figure that is kind of um, used to divide and conquer any kind of solidarity or coalition among. These groups. And I think the same thing is actually happening now with the Harvard affirmative action case. Uh, Asians, uh, the work of Claire Jean Kim has been really great to look at the role that Asians or the figure of the Asian American in all of the affirmative action cases dating back to Baki. In uh, the the late 70s and sort of looking at the way that usually Asian Americans are used actually to discount the 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 objective of historical redress for black and brown um, applicants to school. And so so Asian Americans have, you know, have been really manipulated in that way, I think, by by through model minority discourse or and also through um, affirmative action discourse.
1: One of the ironies of the affirmative action discourse is when I was an undergraduate at Berkeley, I was talking to a black admissions officer, and what what he said was that it, that the complaints about the growing Asian American and Asian undergraduate population were not coming from black and brown students or parents. It was coming from white students and their parents who saw their positions being threatened by black Asian and Latinx uh, growing populations on campuses, but then of course that gets flipped with the myth.
0: Right, right, um, and and also I think that there are a certain very small percentage. I mean, again, all all this is I feel so related to the media coverage because it it the way that the Harvard affirmative action case is often presented is is if. Uh, Many Asian Americans uh, are opposed to affirmative action, Um, but it turns out, you know, the vast majority are in favor of affirmative action. It's actually a small, you know, a small population or a small percentage of recent, I think, and predominantly Chinese and some South Asian communities who are against affirmative action. But there's also been evidence to show that shows that um, Asian Americans also benefit from affirmative action, which kind of goes to what you're saying.
1: And one—I mean, you're working several other scholars, I mean, activists work. One of the dangerous aspects of the model minority myth, in addition to whatever, to the way it is, is or is not manipulated, is the fact that some of the poorest populations in the United States are are, are Asian American. I assume that's probably the case in Canada as well. So that, that both ethnic and class differences and the actual. Conditions of power that many Asians live live under are totally missed.
0: I think that actually, you know, I haven't checked the demographic um, profile of Canada lately, but uh, in Canada, there are more Asian groups. So I think that with the last time I was even thinking about this, I believe it was around, you know, 12%. I, I should actually check that. But I, so it's significantly higher uh, in Canada. And but in terms of thinking about cultural erasure and those the politics of representation, I agree that, yeah, there's there's uh, a lot of misrepresentation and, and, and assumptions about, about Asian Americans that also doesn't take into account the heterogeneity of, of Asian ethnic groups, particularly that are related to the stages or the, the historical context of their migration or forced migration to North America.
1: One of the general themes in your work is to think through the question of settler colonialism how it's related to racial capitalism and how that has shaped racial and ethnic politics. Discourse flows the population. How do you see that work developing both for yourself and more generally, how do you see what are some of the challenges that those of us who are trying to do that work face today?
0: I mean, that was one of the major questions, I think, of my book. I mean, one of the things I wanted to think about, or when I was, this is probably beginning, you know, when I was uh, a graduate student, I wanted to understand why, you know, I I had actually done, uh, wrote an article that just compared U.S. and census, uh, U.S. and Canadian census categories, because I, when I first moved to the United States for graduate school, I thought, wow, it's so black and white here. (laughs) <laughs> but really different from my experience growing up in, in British Columbia. So just based on like purely just anecdotal, you know, not empirical kind of, you know, uh, reflection. I, I, I thought like, you know, because I, I had grown up, you know, during the times when, the, you know, the Native blockade movement was, you know, was definitely on the, in the news. It was kind of front page sort of news all the time. Um, these, uh, the struggle of First Nations people against various forms of resource extraction or, you know, or what, what have you. And then in the U.S., it was very urban-centered, kind of, you know, uh, standoffs and uh, rebellions and things like that. So I was interested in sort of thinking about, like, okay, if, if Canada has, like, a very different kind of politics, that's, that is much where, where Native politics are, Indigenous politics are much more foregrounded than they are in the U.S., then why is, why, why is the racialization of Asian Canadians and Asian Ca- Americans like exactly the same? <laughs> 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 Since the 19th century, you know, all like most of the immigration policies like kind of hop, fall around the same years and, you know, leading up to internment and then even the liberalization of immigration law in 1967 in Canada and 1965 in, in the U.S. So I was like, what accounts for like this similarity in two places that seem to have very different kind of racial and indigenous formation? So, and just to add to that a little bit, I mean, in the U.S., when I started my the ethnic studies Ph.D. program at UC Berkeley, I was I was kind of surprised to even see that Native uh, American Indian studies was kind of part of ethnic studies because in Canada never would be framed in that way (laughs) because ethnicity and that 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 framing in Canada was always associated with foreigners, (laughs) and so it seemed to it seemed uh, odd, I guess, to me at the time that you would include like a native indigenous group alongside kind of racial otherness uh, racial foreignness. Um, So that was another thing I was trying to understand a little bit better. Um, And usually in, in our classes, it was difficult to sort of think through the questions of immigration, trans, you know, anti-nationalism, a lot of the things that were very prominent in a lot of critical theory around race and then try to apply it. Or there was almost like a disconnect between, you know, the arguments that Native people were making. And so I was interested in all of those contradictions. So I think I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, what was I talking We were talking about, uh, oh yeah, just thinking about racial otherness in Canada and the U.S. Yeah, so that anyways, but that was my original question, I think. What accounts for the parallels or the correspondence in Asian racialization in Canada and the U.S.? And I think that one of the places where I, one of the things I wanted to argue against was that you couldn't understand or you couldn't answer that question by strictly by focusing on a certain kind of black and white color line because it didn't really travel <laughs> to Canada. And so I so the so for me the common denominator in both Canada and the US that might help me give give me a framework for understanding the heterogeneity of racial formation in Canada and the US, but then also to understand the similarity of of anti-Asian racialization. So, and that that common denominator is that they're both settler colonies. <laughs> and then I, I also looked a little bit at, you know, Australia and, uh, you know, very, again, very similar kind of history of, of anti-Asian policy and, and that kind of thing. So I was trying to sort of think about, well, there's something that's going on with settler co- colonies that produces this kind of thing. So what is it? And so that was sort of the beginning of, of the project.
1: And... As scholars, you helped us move down that road, but where do we need to go next?
0: Where do we need to go next? I think that a lot of the work that people, I mean, there's increasingly a lot of work, I think, done. What I what excites me is the work that people like... Tiffany King are doing, uh, K- Tiffany King and a bunch of um, Asian American and Asian Canadian scholars who are thinking through the intersections of race and settler colonialism <laughs> and thinking about that relation uh, as a kind of a fundamental aspect of, of uh, what I call settler colonial racial capitalism. <laughs> so um, in Tiffany King's work, she's, you know, she's definitely you know, thinking, putting uh, Indigenous studies alongside uh, alongside Black feminism, you know, Black studies. Um, and so that, that's been, I think that that's really fruitful. Justin Leroy also is thinking about, you know, through difficult questions about, you know, the intersection of slavery and colonization. And I think that those are more fruitful approaches than others that want to approach race and indigeneity as either, as kind of a, an either or, or <laughs> like, you know, one is more important or one is more foundational. Um, I, I think that it's more important to think about how these are working in relation to one another. Um, so uh, I think that's the word, that, that those are the places that we need to go.
1: One of the ways this came up at the conference over the weekend at the University of Illinois that Susan Kochi and her colleagues put together so brilliantly, was the ideal that when we think about indigeneity, we also need to think about Africa as well. Because if you think about what the, Africa as a site of dispossession and settler colonialism and the, some of the same processes that we talked about in terms of the Pacific and the Western Hemisphere, it complicates some of the, I guess, some of the ways that people thought about settler colonialism in the past and the differences say, between the processes of settler colonialism on one hand and labor and commodification on the mm-hmm. other.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, and I, the work of Robin Kelly has been really helpful for this. I mean, I, and, and I just wanted to just mention that when I first started this project, that became my book. I mean, I would tell people that I was interested in race and settler colonialism and they would, like, their eyes would glaze over. <laughs> they Um, and I really think that even as early as you know when I started and when I was in graduate school in like 2000 2000, I started in 2001 you know people didn't actually think of the United States as a British settler colony you know they thought they they might have thought they wanted to think of themselves as more of an empire and it seems like almost contradictory to sort of say that a place can be both an empire and a settler colony Mm -hmm. Uh, because we tend to sort of think of through paradigms of colonialism and associated with backwardness or, you know, whatever, uh, and being dominated by some other place. Um, And so I think that it was very difficult for people to imagine that, and which is why I think a little bit that there's been much more attention on U.S. settler colonies like Hawaii, Mm -hmm. (laughs) theorizing Mm -hmm. what settler colonialism is. And it's understandably difficult to sort of look at the continental United States in the United well in the United States because uh, you have to deal with slavery and, and you have to deal with um, race and and that intersection. So so when I first started, all the comments that I would get was you know why are you looking at Asian Americans? They have nothing to do with settler colonialism. It's all about indigenous and settler. You know it's that it doesn't fit in the framework. So so I think that so when I first started this work, uh, I actually looked at a lot of um, there's journals that were based in in africa or about africa looking at different settler so i read a, like a 1970 i think essay called the settler Mode of production and i don't know if it was South africa it was you know somewhere but it was so i had to rely on some of this work that was being done in settler colonies in africa um but i think that what robin kelly's work um he kind of made this big intervention in an an important essay in American Quarterly, where he talks about, you know, when we look at Africa, it complicates all the things that we think about in terms of distinguishing labor and land. And also um, one of the things that uh, Patrick Wolf, who's often associated with the field of settler colonialism argued, was that, you know, settler colonialism is a structure, not an event. And it kind of gives you the impression that it's like, never ending in some ways he actually does say it's never ending it never ends <laughs> but it does right. if you look at if you look at um africa you know algeria kenya mozambique i don't know if you want to call it the end of settlers. it's at the end of something you know you have an exodus of settlers so what how do we we don't even have a framework or kind of a theoretical discussion of that and so he, one of kelly's um you know one of his uh observations is perhaps you know Wolf didn't really want to look at Africa because it sort of complicated a lot of those um, those kind of neat cultural axioms that you know make the, the uh, settler colonialism sort of more. I guess it draws out that kind of structural dynamic um, in a in a very tidy kind of way.
1: And I think that I'm thinking of my own work in. Is that I think we we like to come up with tidy theoretical explanations, and that's why historians and others really keep throwing monkey wrenches at us <laughs> because when you, you start seeing how contingent some of these patterns are and how uh, fragile some of these structures are, and they differ quite 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 broadly across time and place. Yeah,
0: no, definitely, and um, I mean especially. This whole idea that, you know, I mean, one of the things that Patrick Wolf says is that, you know, slaves were the relation to settlers was based on their labor and the re- their relation with indigenous people was based on their land. Um, but, of course, indigenous people everywhere labor. <laughs> but why are they associated yep. with outside of labor? Why are they associated with um, or or or. A, a, an unwanted labor force. So I'm kind of interested in that. That like, what happens if we think about indigeneity and work um, in particular, and what what new ways can it complicate actually that idea of work, which is so central, obviously, to a kind of especially when we're thinking about racial capitalism or Marx, you know, Marxist theory. Um, what happens if we privilege the indigenous laborer um, for understanding um, these dynamics, um, and, and in particular. Robin Kelly, sort of looking to Africa, he says, you know, they wanted African land and labor. Settlers wanted African land and labor. And he says, but not the people. So it's kind of an evocative kind of uh, observation about labor not being kind of associated with a kind of personhood or humanity.
1: I I make the same type of claim with respect respect to Wilderson's work where he says that black people weren't brought here to work, they are brought here to die. And my response is they were brought here to work and die. It's not an either-or. And I think the same type of deep interrogation, you can problematize some of the claims you find in some of the work of Afro pessimists about what's the centrality of slavery. Because as we know from the recent work, indigenous peoples were enslaved too. And that it was quite in North America and that these categories morph and get mutated when we start when we look closely at the different patterns of enslavement of indigenous versus uh, Africans who were brought here, et cetera. But it's not just that black bodies were enslaved and indigenous people were dispossessed. These are processes that are very, very closely linked. And depending on the colonial regime at the uh-huh. time, quite, sometimes quite hard to pull apart.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I don't really look at Spanish colonialism at all, <laughs> and, and cause I was trying to really understand British settler colonies uh, colonialism, but yeah, absolutely. When you if you take it, if you want to look cross so, like cross settler colonial or comparatively, um, you do have to account for the enslavement of indigenous people. Absolutely, it was brutal enslavement of indigenous peoples. Yeah, so I agree with that.
1: Maybe we can end by thinking a little bit about what were some of the main takeaways from the Racial Capitalism Conference held at the University of Illinois at the end of March.
0: For me, I thought that the main takeaways were, I think, one of the things I really, really appreciated was the focus on law and a rethinking of the uh, way in which racial capitalism gets, this sort of... uh, instantiated through the law and sort of, or, or, and um, sort of articulated uh, and and embedded in the law and legal structures. And so I thought that that was really interesting. Um, and so I thought that, so the work on, on debt in particular uh, that Cheryl Harris was speaking to uh, was really, really illuminating. and thinking about um, how legal categories that sort of seem race neutral actually end up, just reproducing the kinds of racial the as she I think as she says it, the kind of the unequal access to economic and social and political resources.
1: Yeah, I found Cheryl's paper really, really important and one of the ironies, grim ironies that she presented was how the word improvement uh-huh. was used as a mask for greater predation. Okay. Of vulnerable communities in Southern California and elsewhere. One of the other takes I think I took away, took away was the increased, in, it's not an increased in importance, but the growing awareness of the importance for understanding international capital flows, for structuring the processes at the local level that we're mm-hmm. studying. And I found that to be a very useful direction. That's a lot of the work is taking as well. Yeah.
0: And 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 for me too, just it, which this kind of relates to wastelanding, is that you know some of these. So when we think of the history of redlining around, which would refuse loans to you know basically black and brown people who live who wanted to live in who were living in kind of segregated uh, inner city neighborhoods, how in the kind of neoliberal framework those devalued forms of property are also valuable for their devaluation. (laughs) They become both so so it's interesting that she was focusing on that kind of that sort of logic of development. So let's underdevelop this one place so that later we can develop it.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Let's hollow it out, including we want the land but we don't want the people. That seems to be a common but but yeah that
0: hollowing out or just re yeah so it's like I thought, thought that was really interesting to think about a place that is valued for its valuelessness, which connects actually to the work of um, Grace Hong, who who thinks about these ex, she calls it existentially surplus populations who are valuable for their valuelessness, and you know particularly when you with the warehousing of black people in prisons, you know they're not really doing anything; they're just kind of um, part of the collateral <laughs> of of that institution. So they're 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 there because They support the sort of whole racial capitalist system, but they're not working. They're not valued for their for being productive members of society. Um, and however that's framed.
1: And one of the themes that your work brought out and a few of the other papers was the importance of sinking through these processes of racial capitalism, settler colonialism, in parallel with sinking through environmental depredations, climate change, and environmental justice processes that you can't separate these processes or these movements. Um, They're very much linked and part of the capitalist order that we live in today. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, we didn't – I mean, one of the more – I think that Naomi Klein's work is really helpful for, you know, connecting all of these – some of these dots, and and particularly because she's talked about how um, in a kind of neoliberal, you know, or orthodox kind of understanding, you know, you have to have, because I mean, part of, I think, you know, the disagreement or, or sort of my shock is like, how do people on the right not accept that there's climate change, right? What is what is underlying that kind of ideology? And so she talks about how it's this, if, if you believe in neoliberalism, as if you believe that market liberalization equals or expands, human freedom and particularly the freedom even for people of color in a kind of neoliberal multiculturalism that Jodi malaman's work um, explores. If you believe that, then you, you you can't actually, there's no place for you to believe in climate change, right? It just is, it doesn't fit within that narrative because capitalism is good. And so the attraction has to be sort of folded into that and into that kind of that whatever, that rosy sort of picture of neoliberal and in the hidden hand of the market always knowing what's right for everyone.
1: <laughs> yep. And Melamed's and Reddy's work and their colleagues also point to the darker side of that same logic, right? Which is that these these groups of folks also are uncumbered, as they put it, by the need to be concerned about anyone else. And that that also drives this logic of accumulation and expropriation. Yeah, and,
0: and oftentimes, I think, especially with Chandan Reddy's work in, in Freedom with Violence, um, which connects to Dean Spade's work as well, but the, increasingly the ways in which vulnerable communities of color, queer and trans communities of color, are the sort of face of neoliberal multiculturalism. So, I mean, in Chandan's work, he has talked about how with the beard the Shepherd beard act, um which is a like a uh, an, an anti, a hate crime kind of legislation it expanded hate crime, the purview of hate crime legislation. It came with something like an eight billion dollar you know increase in military spending <laughs> so so I mean, a lot of these things are you know, you have this you have the sort of face of like what seems to be about protecting vulnerable communities, but in fact makes them more vulnerable because a lot of this funding ends up expanding police overview. And these are, of course, the agents of the most violence against these (laughs) very communities, right? So there are many contradictions that racial capitalism are kind of recent phase of it that we have to kind of um, untangle.
1: Well, there's a lot of work we have in front of us. And on that note, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for tuning in. Please find us on RacingCapitalism.com, that is RacingCapitalism.com, to access the show notes describing this and all the other episodes, and stay up to date on the Racing Capitalism Project.